Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am doing very well, Sarah, but it is pretty early in the morning. It is early in the morning. Usually we don't record at 8 a.m. We've been doing this lately, the last couple of episodes. Is this going to be a new trend or what? Oh, gosh, I hope not. Mornings are not my thing. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> but we do have a really good excuse for being on so early. I love that. What's what's our excuse? Yes. So today we are interviewing a couple of gentlemen from across the pond. And this is in celebration of World Rabies Day that is coming up. So September 28th is World Rabies Day. And today we have Dr. Terrence Scott and Mr. Kim Doyle from the Global Alliance for Rabies Control. So welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Good morning. Awesome. Welcome, guys. Excellent. Thank you. And good morning. Yeah. So um, let's start out with a little bit of an introduction. Um, Dr. Scott, would you like to go first? Yes, that'd be great. Thank you. So um, good morning to, to everyone who's listening. Um, I'm Dr. Terrence Scott with the Global Alliance for Rabies Control. So in essence, we are a um, international non-profit non organization that focuses on rabies elimination. And part of my role is very much in terms of the development and implementation of different tools to support national governments and organizations who are driving rabies elimination around the world. So I'm lucky enough to, to get to travel and experience different cultures and, and people from around the world uh, through my work, which is fantastic. That's awesome. So we also have Mr. Kim Doyle with us. Good morning, um, everyone. And I am, I think I'm responsible for your early starts as I'm based in, uh, in London, or at least phoning in from London today. So my name is Kim Doyle. I'm the COO of the Global Alliance. I am not a scientist. Um, I came from the philanthropic community. I worked for uh, development agencies. And uh, my entry into rabies control was sitting in Jodhpur, which is uh, in the Thar Desert between India and Pakistan, having come across a rabies control program and trying to find bite prevention information. And I was struggling to find information on bite prevention, on rabies control. And a little bit later, a group of rabies experts came to us looking for support to start up the Global Alliance for Rabies Control. And I was saying, absolutely, I sat in a desert looking for this nonprofit and couldn't find one. And I, I funded the beginning of the organization. And a little bit later, when I looked around at the portfolio of activities that I was doing, I thought the most fun thing I could do or most meaningful and impactful thing was to leave uh, the foundation and build out the organization with the founder at the time, Dr. Briggs. And when was this? When did this all happen? So uh, it's all a bit blurred in history. This was in 2006. Um, it was probably 2005. I was sitting in a desert in, 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 in India. Uh, then we officially launched in 2006. And our first program was World Rabies Day in 2007, which we launched with the US CDC in Atlanta that first year. 
That's very cool. Did you have a, a lot of success the first year, a lot of support? It was, uh, uh, as a funding organization, I just provided the startup funding to, uh, to the nonprofit. So we didn't put a lot of money into it. So since then, we've sort of built it step by step. So the answer was no. <laughs> first year, we had some support from USCDC. Um, we comms people in. There was lots of support from the rabies community who felt that the disease was neglected at all levels, including within the international community. And we sort of took it step. Our aspiration, I think, for that first year was try 50, 55,000 people involved, one for each death. Um, uh, avoidable death from rabies. And by the time the Nigerian government had put out some public health announcements, we had hundreds of thousands of awarenesses and messages and uh, way, way more than we ever anticipated when we dreamt this up um, over coffee in a, in a local shop. That's very cool. Yeah, that death total, is that, uh, what, over what time period is that 55,000 deaths? Doctor. So, so that's that's um, that's an older estimate from from modeling studies, but that's every year. Um, so, more recent estimates uh, are around fifty nine thousand, and that's usually the the figure that's that's um, touted between different organizations, and that actually equates to about one person every nine minutes dying from rabies um, every single well, yeah, throughout the entire year. Uh, which is scary considering the fact that if you hear, you know, 59,000 in comparison to some of the other diseases out there, you, sometimes you, you you may not really think that, that rabies is that important, but then if you put it into those those sort of more realistic numbers of or more um, identifiable numbers, such as the person every nine minutes, you know, that, that suddenly becomes something that's a little bit more scary and a bit more impactful. Yeah. Rick, do you know the numbers for Nebraska? I do not. Um, you know. Oh, epic um, fail. Yeah, You should have done your own work. <laughs> I should have. I should have. Um, I, I can't imagine that it's much. I mean, we don't see rabies in uh, the U.S. very often in humans. We get exposures that we worry about, but we don't actually get cases. I've never seen a case as an ID provider. I think this is one of the challenges with the disease. I mean, it's part of the challenge stems from the success accomplished today. I mean, we no longer have millions dying of the disease. I think we at one point, I mean, we're talking about, I think 2.6 million people would die. The disease wasn't for the vaccines and the control and elimination efforts. So this is the part of the challenge. We're really talking of the last mile, the sort of poorest in society, primarily in Africa and Asia. Yeah, just to add on to that is the the first old rabies day that's that kim mentioned was in celebration of the us declaring freedom from dog mediated rabies so that that's been a huge milestone it's now been um what 15 16 years since then and i think one of the the biggest challenges in the us that's that's being faced is the the lack of continued engagement in terms of the public the public awareness ensuring that the animals remain vaccinated because while dog rabies um, isn't endemic in, in the US anymore, they still have bat rabies and wildlife rabies cases. And obviously if you don't vaccinate your pets, there is that potential for spillover. 
um, and then obviously that potential for, for risk to to the people too. So that continued awareness is is always something that's that's a huge struggle in those countries that have achieved success. So it's actually a, a, a sort of yeah a negative that comes from something that's that's so positive. It's you know, the majority of our focus remains on the dog rabies endemic countries. So our focus is very much still on the, the dog rabies uh, endemic world, uh, which is primarily in, in Africa and Asia. So is that- yeah, So Terrence, uh, I'm just curious. So we heard how Kim uh, got interested in this. How, where did your interest in rabies start? My, my story is a lot less colorful than Kim's. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I was I was studying to do veterinary science um, at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, and uh, one of my lecturers was uh, Professor Louis Nell, who was lecturing me on virology, and I enjoyed his class so much that I decided to to move from veterinary science to microbiology, um, and he then became my my uh, principal investigator for my postdoctoral or my um, uh, degrees further on to my master's, my doctorate, and my postdoctoral, and he's also our current executive director. So that's how I got involved with the Global Alliance. So as I say, a bit of a less colourful story than than Kim's, but um, yeah, I've 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 been around for seven years now, so it's it's starting to become, you know, something that's that's very important to me, and always has been something that's been of of interest to me. It's amazing how you fall into something that you love, isn't it? You have your grand plans and then all of a sudden you take one class and you're hooked. <laughs> exactly. All my friends thought I was absolutely crazy for, for dropping veterinary science because it was extremely competitive to get in. And then eventually I said, well, it's it's okay. I'm, I'm moving on. So <laughs> and everyone sort of gaped at me. <laughs> I just looked. So the last U.S. death, according to the CDC, from human with human rabies was November of 2018. Yeah, there, there was a, a recent case where um, uh, a lady, I think it was, if I remember, earlier this year or maybe the end of last year. I, I can't remember exactly, but there was a case where um, one lady was exposed um, to, if I remember correctly, a bat. Um, that bite or a bad scratch and she refused treatment for I'm not sure what what reasons but you know I think that the general issues we face around vaccine hesitancy um, she refused treatment and she unfortunately um, succumbs to the disease because she didn't go for that post-exposure prophylaxis um, so there have been more recent deaths unfortunately um, but as I say, it's all from the, the wildlife and primarily from, from bat rabies. I think one of the challenges with this disease is you don't have a, well, you have no survivors who are there really to campaign on behalf of it. I mean, if you have the clinical symptoms of rabies, you will die um, from the disease. So that challenge of when I turned around to the rabies expert saying, how come I had no sense, especially as a European, that rabies was still killing people in different parts of the world. And part of the reason there isn't a group of advocates. And that's part of the reason why when we launched um, World Rabies Day and, and the Global Alliance for Rabies Control, the sense was we need 
to sort of provide a, a voice for those silent victims because they don't exist. So what could we do in terms of getting messaging out there, education to sort of campaign on behalf of these silent victims? That's interesting. I didn't know that it was a 100% mortality rate. <clears throat> I guess I there's, a handful, <laughs> there's a handful of survivors. But, well, but. right. I'm sure there are, there are always outliers, right? But, um, you know, I grew up on a farm and and it was always like, oh, that raccoon has rabies. Just stay away from it. You know, like it wasn't a huge deal. They were, <laughs> they were there to stay away from them. But I guess I didn't realize that it was that serious. So probably I'm, had distemper, actually. I think so. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. It was, it was acting funny. Stay away from it. <laughs> That's a good round of some advice. But I mean, it's if you knew, if we look back at sort of history, if you, what was it, the old yellow? If you were brought up on a farm, I don't know if you ever saw the film in in the fifties, the Disney film, um, with a sort of faithful family dog who is, I think, put down, um, protecting the speakers from a sort of rabid wolf. Mm -hmm. I mean, those sort of bits of information get lost as the disease is no longer. Um, certainly in Europe, when it comes to dog rabies, is no longer visible and at the front of people's um, awareness. Such a sad story. Disney's got to tug at the heartstrings, don't they? <laughs> I think we think about Cujo, if you guys have ever seen that movie. That's kind of the, the U.S. Western view of rabies, I think, uh, at least in my mind. It's like, you know, as a kid of the 80s. I've never seen it, unfortunately, but I, I do know of it, and I've I've used that example in many presentations. Um, and people are always surprised that I that I know about this seemingly less well known. Um, I think it's Stephen King. Um, it is. Yeah, and seemingly it's less well known, but I always come up with these random facts, and people are shocked at me with sort of this yeah. random knowledge. But it's only because I'm involved in rabies elimination efforts. So I think, Kim, you had mentioned some steps that you guys take when you're um, looking at places. Uh, can, can we talk through kind of what you do to try to help these places out? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as we said um, you know, today, the vaccines exist. We've had effective uh, cultured vaccines since the 70s. Uh, we know there's proven pathways. We've seen that in the U.S. and lots of different other countries where there's sort of political will and funding where that exists. And sort of improved educational awareness, which makes a difference how not to get bitten in the first place. So the, the question we had when we went um, and we launched the organization is how do we move forward with this last mile for the disease? And, and really that first um, steps was trying to build that evidence base as for many sort of scientific endeavors um, to increase in this case, a sort of political commitment to end the disease. Um, so the first sort of early stages of the organization looked at the global burden of the disease. What is the number? We discussed that a little bit. And as Terence said, it was modeled. Um, looking at the health economics to make the case at the global level for interventions, and particularly around dog vaccination. And then sort of campaigns to get the larger organizations to support um, some of these elimination goals. So we set a goal of zero human deaths by 2030 in line with the um, SDGs, these UN goals, and, and then pushed and campaigned for this adoption which happened by the World Health Organization, OIE, and International 
and, and the FAO. This is sort of the One Health, both agriculture and health. And that pervaded the momentum to move things forward. So today, at the international level, we have a, a global plan, a shared global plan for the first time of how to tackle a disease with health and agriculture, all lined up around a shared vision, which didn't happen or didn't exist when we were launched in 2007. And most importantly, the question is then how in Asia and Africa do you move forwards in individual countries? So that's the sort of top-down bit, but the bottom up. And the, the challenge is, is you can create a project and you replicate it, and then you do another project, but that doesn't really help the sustainability. It's really for governments and communities to take leadership, just like as, as, uh, as your state does, to try to work out what's needed to move forward. So as an organization, essentially what we've been doing for the last few years is developing a set of tools to help local communities and governments uh, plan and then deliver their programs and looking at some of the gaps around surveillance of the disease and so forth. Um, Terence, I mean, that's a sort of big overarching answer, but one part is pushing a global agenda forward. You do it if you're neglected disease. And then the practical reality of countries. And Terence, no doubt, who leads on a number of these initiatives, can talk about sort of practical assistance, uh, sustainable practical assistance to, to, to countries. Yes, I think, I mean, the, the key thing that you, you mentioned there, Kim, was the sustainability aspect of it, because, as you say, it's it's easy to, to have a project, you, you go into a country, um, you know, you, you do all these fantastic interventions, you have all these tools available, but then there's no local capacity building, there's no training of, of professionals in the country, but then as soon as you leave, as soon as your project funding runs out, um, you know, everything collapses again and then returns back to, to what it was or in many cases, even worse than what it was initially. Um, so our focus is, is very, very much on um, providing support and tools to local groups, whether that's governments, NGOs, you know, whoever is involved and interested and providing that support and that training to them so that they can really take um, the the control of the situation and drive it themselves and and this is reflected in the global strategic plan that you mentioned um, where it's very much focused on a country-centric approach and then how we then go about that is to engage with what we call rabies champions within each of those countries those are the people who are really interested in in driving the elimination with whatever resources they have available they are the ones who will, um, you know, take this further, who will build upon the, the campaign. And if you can find those champions or when you find those champions, you then, um, you know, have and can build a program around them with the supports that um, our organization, but also the, the rest of the international community can then provide. Um, not necessarily only in funding, because again, we look at that sustainability aspect to try and encourage the funding to come from the national governments to have that ownership um, but of course in terms of stimulus in terms of tools in terms of best practices and and bringing that all together in a, a neat and comprehensive package that's that can be de delivered effectively and efficiently 
what are some of those tools and best practices that you uh, teach some of these uh, places? So one of the examples that, that Kim mentioned was um, our surveillance tools as an example. Um, so we've set up a, an entire surveillance system that helps to collect and analyze the data um, to, to make sure that the, the national governments, the countries themselves have a good understanding of the, the current situation. And that ties us back to that initial um, discussion around the 59,000 deaths every year. Um, that's a modeling estimate. That's the reason we still use that. And it's, it's a hotly debated topic still in, in many aspects is that, is this figure reliable? And the answer is that it's the best thing that we have, unfortunately, but it may not necessarily be an accurate reflection of, of what the situation is, but that's just because the surveillance in, in these rabies endemic countries is so poor. And so we've we've developed a system to then provide to the national government so that they can improve the surveillance and we can eventually get to that point where we're not relying on these models and estimates, but rather on the actual data that's coming from the ground and from the communities. Um, that's that's one of the many things, but we have education courses, um, various different packages. We've integrated um, rabies education into the national curriculum in the Philippines, as an example. Um, so not just looking at biology or, or something like that, where you would expect rabies to appear, but having um, lessons in mathematics that have examples that then relate to and tie in with, with rabies and bite prevention. Um, so we've really, um, you know, worked hard and our uh, team and all of our different collaborators and partners have been extremely creative in different ways to engage um, with people on a disease that's that's really often just neglected and, and forgotten. Um, so you need to try to be creative. Just come, coming back to the surveillance, I mean, this this vicious cycle of no I mean, it, it's really very circular. The lack of surveillance basically results in a sort of underestimate of the burden, which then contributes to a lack of investment. You go to the government and they're saying, what are the figures? And, oh, no, there isn't any rabies because they're not looking for it. And as a result, there's no programs and control programs to address. So this circle of neglect and how to break it is a fundamental challenge. The emphasis on, on surveillance and tracking and trying to gather decent um, information as to the reality on the ground. And when you're talking tracking and trying to get the reality on the ground, you're talking human rabies here? Or are you talking animal rabies? You're talking both? What, uh, what data are you getting? It's, it's all of it. Um, so human and animal, it's, it's essential to to understand the disease in animal populations to prevent or eliminate the disease in humans because it's a zoonotic disease. Um, the majority of, of human rabies deaths globally um, are from dog-mediated uh, rabies cases. Um, and so we need to understand and prevent the disease in the animal population first um, to, to then have that sustainable impact of preventing the disease in, in, in humans. So the surveillance really, um, in terms of that sort of one health model, I'm not sure how much you guys would have, would have spoken about that on, on previous episodes, but 
really looking at that linkage between human, animal, and environmental health, bringing together all those different partners, those stakeholders, so that we are working towards a common goal and working in a, a sort of holistic manner um, where each is contributing to their aspect, but to that that greater that greater good. Um, so the surveillance is is very much on both human and animal, and especially important is not just having the animal rabies information for the animal rabies or animal health sector or the human rabies information for the human health sector, but sharing that information among the different sectors so that. As an example, the, the animal health sector can see that a human rabies case has occurred in this particular province or district, and so they can then react with uh, animal rabies vaccinations in that particular area to prevent more human rabies cases. Um, so that it's not just having that information, but also sharing that information, having those open lines of communication um, between the different sectors. And I think an additional point on, on the surveillance is our ability to track vaccines into dogs. And the technology today allows us to be able to say, if there's a vaccination campaign being undertaken by a state or a government or civil society um, to, to, to monitor exactly where that vaccine has gone into the dog, be able to map it, to then be able to provide strategic advice. It doesn't matter if you're sitting you know, in in Hawaii or, or Luxembourg, the reality today is we can track and guide governments for campaigns to then undertake strategic responses to uh, to rabies, either outbreaks or, or where it's endemic. Um, and this is something which has changed in recent years. And the tools, we have that capacity and we do that for, for multiple partners to have a more strategic response when it comes to vaccination. I mean, I think historically, or if you read literature, they'll talk about 70% um, of, of the population to achieve sort of herd immunity. And I think today we can um, be more strategic with our vaccination, especially in resource constrained environments to demonstrate success. And that's certainly something which um, 10 years ago, um, wouldn't have been possible, and it's the advances in technology who have, who have allowed for that. And I think the other thing is with COVID-19, you've seen a whole set of developments um, which you hadn't anticipated in terms of adoption of some of these tools um, that perhaps we would have faced a bit more of a challenge, but with what's happened, you'll see, you know, willingness to engage not only in sort of surveillance and, and tracking vaccines, but even, for instance, some laboratory training and deliver that in a virtual way, which wouldn't perhaps have been possible before uh, the new world we inhabit post, post the pandemic. What, um, what is the cost to immunize one dog? So that's that's different in in most countries uh, around the world, but uh, a good estimate is between one and four dollars um, to to vaccinate an animal, and that's that includes everything. So that's your your personnel, your vehicle hire to go to village to village to to vaccinate animals. Um, the actual dog rabies vaccine is extremely uh, cheap and cost effective. So that's not a limiting factor. It's more the 
the logistics around that. And I think that's where um, the, the strategic aspect of, of what Kim was mentioning is, is really important to cut those costs. Um, and as always with, I think, almost everything, like if you get your, your car fixed by a mechanic, it's, it's the labor, the, the human factor that adds all the, the costs onto that. Um, so the actual needle syringes vaccine itself is extremely cost effective, um, which allows us to, to be able to vaccinate en masse, which is what we obviously need. So you talked a little bit earlier about vaccine hesitancy. Is there hesitancy in vaccinating the animals as well? Very seldom um, from, from my experience. Um, I think different people, again, around the world in different countries would experience different reactions. Um, usually what it is is simply in terms of education um, because people don't understand why their dog needs to be vaccinated, um, you know, what this vaccine actually does. Um, if they don't understand that and don't understand that rabies is the disease that is causing all your farm animals or your hunting animals or, you know, your, your companion animals to, to die, if you don't understand that, then you don't understand the need for a vaccine. And immediately this foreign you know, thing coming into your animal is is something that sh that should be um, prevented. But if you can tell people, you can explain that very easily, then I think vaccine hesitancy isn't really a thing that we've experienced, um, at least in my personal experience. I think most of vaccine hesitancy comes down to lack of education, doesn't it, across the board? Definitely. Yeah. I think I yeah. think it's far more of a challenge in in the the human health side. Um, as we spoke about earlier in terms of that that recent case in the US, um, you know, that's 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 an unnecessary death where the infrastructure, everything was available. Um, the US CDC were in contact, they they suggested and advised that that vaccine be be um, uh, given to this person, but based on that vaccine hesitancy, they they refused that and unfortunately passed away. Um, I think the, the main problem in the rabies endemic world is because rabies typically affects the, the poorest and most underserved communities, it's less so about vaccine hesitancy, but more so about vaccine availability um, and that access to care because your local clinic is, if you're in a rural area, is unlikely, first of all, to even have rabies vaccine available. If they do, it's going to be at an extraordinary cost that's more than a month's salary in, in many instances, which people just, just cannot afford. And that's a huge stumbling block. Just this is a little bit where the sort of global campaigning um, activities play their role. So we've been um, working to get some of these much larger groups, such as Garvey, um, the public-private the global health partnership and a, frankly a formidable force for good. I think they sort of helped vaccinate almost half the world's children against infectious diseases. They had added rabies to their vaccine portfolio for 2021, the part of the ongoing um, efforts to, to, to get them to take it on. Um, but the challenge we have now is with COVID, 
again, when it comes to global public health, um, that's now sitting on a back burner, we understand. So some of that global efforts is to try to um, address some of the challenges of access and affordability to those human health vaccines. So what do you feel has been your most successful campaign or project? Wow, that's a challenging <laughs> question. I think, so certainly, um, as I've been involved with the organization since, um, since its creation, what that's allowed me to see is actually progress over time. I think the reality is you're, you're in a job for a year or so, and especially when you're looking at these larger issues, you see limited progress. So I think if you can look at it over the, over the period of the organization, and as I said, this was an organization set up by committed scientists with no funding. Essentially, we've brought together the global community and played a role in setting um, the global agenda with a shared strategy. I mean, we're an organization of a half a dozen people, um, which is significant. And from that flows then these efforts to secure significant resources. And I think most proud of is the, the flexibility and the entrepreneurial approach where we say, okay, we don't want to come in and deliver another project. How can we support communities, uh, national governments, local government to take on um, activities? And we've got a process where we come in and look at what they're doing Build, uh, look at their uh, strengths and weaknesses, look at the gaps, and then work out what we can provide us or others in terms of, of uh, additional resources that they need. And that's the most effective way. What you tend to see time and time again, international partners coming in and saying, we have this, would you like it? And of course, you know, that person says, or community says, of course, but is it really what they need? It's much better to have the community saying, this is what we need, this is our plan, we own the plan, and this is what we look for, and then they can direct the support. And that, that process, which really starts with the community, is, is um, certainly the thing I'm most proud of, and I believe it makes it the most sustainable. Um, Terence, from your side, so I guess the the sense of history and time and progress, which is slow. After all, this is a disease which has been around for thousands of years, and we're continuing to try to make progress against that tail end, that last mile. And it's slow, slow, ongoing slog to do so. Yeah, I mean, to, to add on maybe a few more uh, specific examples, this, I would say, just over time and, and as the organization has progressed, starting with World Rabies Day, you know, I think that's that's something that's it's absolutely huge now. It's it's grown significantly, continues to grow, and it's it's you know such an important day for raising global awareness about this disease, getting people who may not necessarily be interested or involved in rabies. Um, you know, engaging with the general public, I think that's that's a fantastic um, achievement, and you know, is something that's continued on uh, to today, of, of course. Um, and then moving on to to other particular examples, for example, um, in terms of the the Philippines, where we um, facilitated and worked with partners to integrate education into the national curriculum, as I mentioned. Um, you know, that's. That, that wasn't a, a quick and easy process and, you know, it took a long time, but has had significant results. 
Um, moving on to, to other demonstration projects in the time when those projects were absolutely essential to, to have that engagement from the international community. Uh, for example, in, uh, in the Philippines, again, in, in Bohol, where there is a project that um, costs, I think it was less than $450,000. And within one or two years, they had um, eliminated all human rabies deaths from, from dogs and had dog rabies numbers down to to only a few from from you know one I think it was the fourth highest in in the country, down to almost none within a short period of time, um, and then moving on to to more recent examples as an example in in Zanzibar, today, where um, we have been I think it's over two years now where it's been free from human rabies deaths from from dogs. And we're down to, I think it's the last two or three rabies cases in, in animals. Um, so we're very close to, to hopefully declaring that as a, a rabies-free area. And you know, I think it's taking all these different tools, all these different resources, all the things that have been developed over the years and implementing it in particular projects, being led by the national governments, being led by partners. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think. We've, we've had, I think, one, maybe two staff in Zanzibar for one or two weeks in a year. So it's not like, you know, massive teams of God, people are flying in and, and you know, implementing this. It's, it's really being driven by the national governments, um, by the partners on the ground. And I think that's one of our big, biggest contemporary successes, at least. Yeah, that's outstanding. Do the... Um... Uh, then do the places like Zanzibar, do they reach out to you and celebrate that success with you? Do they, are they, uh, I mean, is this something that they're proud of and they reach back and say, Terrence and Kim, you guys are awesome. Look what we're doing. I mean, I think that's, that's great. Certainly. Yes. I mean, I, I can't take credit for the Zanzibar project. That's, that's my <laughs> colleague. <laughs> I would love to, but that's, that's really being driven by my colleague, Dr. Andre Kutzer. Um, but yes, I, I think seeing the change in, especially the, the, the general public, the, the population on the ground, you know, seeing that change, seeing that shift from, you know, uncertainty and, and hesitancy to, to really being engaged and, you know, walking up to you and, and saying, you know, listen, we want our dog vaccinated. So it may not necessarily be saying, thank you very much to, to Gark ourselves, but we can see that change in, in the, the understanding of the population and obviously that change in terms of, of saving lives. And I think that's that's key. And then of course celebrating that with the international community, using that as a as an example to show others, you know, you you're in the same situation as as this area. Um, so it is possible. And I think that's the key is we need to, oh, we are showing the the world that even in resource limited constrained areas, it is possible. And that's that's the important part, so that other countries can then hopefully follow suit. Exactly, I think that was the the key part of the whole thing is that celebrate you where you're doing well and learn from those lessons and take it elsewhere. How can you? Obviously, this is a disease that's in. We talked about bats and you know and wild animals, so. I mean, this is going to be a disease you can never let you down your guard on. It's not like we're going to eliminate rabies from the planet, right? So just have to continue these programs going forward. And 
one thing that I think is in human nature is when you think you've got something solved, you put it out of sight and out of mind. So how do you keep the, the momentum going and growing so that we don't do that? That's, that's a very good question. <laughs> we are open to any ideas. Um, no, I, I think, as I said, because most human rabies deaths are of, uh, from dog, dog rabies, that is our focus. Um, of course, there have been huge successes in terms of wildlife rabies control in Europe, in the US, again, um, in Latin America, where they're looking at uh, the hematophagus bats or the vampire bats. Um, they're looking at the development of a vaccine for the vampire bats themselves. Um, so there is progress. Um, that's, that, that will take a long time. In my opinion, I don't think we will ever get rid of rabies as a disease but we can certainly control it and we can certainly ensure that people don't die from this disease um, and that's I think that's the key part of it um, to keep on that that awareness that engagement from the public yeah uh, we are uh, I think we we all ears for any ideas or suggestions <laughs> on that <laughs> and we've seen this with COVID also it took yep what two months for everyone to lose masks to you know begin hugging and kissing one another again um it's, as soon as it, uh, restrictions lift everyone forgets about the disease and now it's back to how we were beforehand so i think if you ask anyone around the world they'll 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 also be open to any ideas <laughs> You said mass vaccination of vampire bats, and I can just see that being like an intro sequence for a really good horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the end of a horror movie, hopefully, because we're getting rid of the horror. <laughs> but right. yeah, no, to be honest, I, I have very little knowledge about that. Um, that's that's something being led by experts in, in Latin America. Um, but it is really interesting work, at least, and... Uh, I was listening to a presentation a few days ago, actually, on uh, rabies in the Amazon basin and the challenges that they face. And it's it's such difficult settings and such difficult scenarios that um, it's 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 going to be a real challenge. And you know, there there is a need to to drive that further. Um, unfortunately, as I say, I'm I'm not particularly involved or knowledgeable in that area, so you'd have to. Maybe call in someone else on <laughs> for the next episode, hopefully. <laughs> so um, we've talked a lot about all of your great resources and tools you have available. If there are people looking for those resources, where can they find them? So that would be on our website or on social media. So our website is rabiesalliance.org. So hopefully fairly straightforward. You don't need to, to spell out the, the long name of the Global Alliance for Rabies Control. Um, and we are on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Um, you can usually find us with the, the tag Rabies Alliance or then Global Alliance for Rabies Control. Um, so yeah, hopefully we're fairly easy to find. Um, but And you should find us in, in Google searches also. Awesome. And I will drop all of those links in our show notes as well for anybody that's listening. Thank you. Fantastic. We appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So how, how many days like of a month are you traveling out, going to places? Uh, either of you. 
This is definitely one for my colleague, Terence. <laughs> <laughs> so pre-pandemic, pre I think um, in 2019, I was traveling for, I'll have to think now, it was, I think about a quarter of the year. Um, so most of the trips that we do are, are a week-long trip. Um, they're usually week-long workshops for the development of national strategies. Uh, diagnostic trainings, those sorts of things. So they're not long um, stints out of the country, but because we do so many in so many different countries, that that adds up very quickly. Um, with COVID, obviously no travel, and we shifted a lot to online things, which, as Kim said, is, is something that we had to adapt to. Um, it's been really interesting. It's been very challenging in many instances, especially because we're looking at endemic countries with poor internet connections. Um, so that's that's often a big frustration. But we've we've managed very well with, with our different partners. And this year um, I've only traveled uh no, it was only last year in December that I traveled for a diagnostic workshop. Um, but again, it's it's slowly starting up and we're expecting to begin travel again um, in 2023 uh, a lot more actively. Mostly in Africa, then. Um, my focus was in Africa. My colleague, Dr. Andre Kutze, who I mentioned, he's the lead for for the uh, our regional network in Africa. Um, my focus is more on the Middle East and North Africa, um, but um, the 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 travel really is is wherever um, we we are needed, and depending on who has time. So. While my colleagues focuses on Africa and myself on Middle East and sort of North Africa area, um, that doesn't mean that we're restricted to those areas. So I think all of our technical team have been to Africa, Asia, um, North Africa, Middle East, in essence, wherever we needed. That's very cool. I'm super jealous. I haven't been outside the US yet, so. <laughs> Well, you're I, gonna have to join join us. Time to join the <laughs> <laughs> be, be warned, once you're in, as Terence was saying, you never leave. So uh, uh yeah. So, I don't know, whatever your plans are, you can then set aside by the time we've my kids will be to, fine. Uh, I'll just leave them here. It'll be great. <laughs> Throw some Cheerios <laughs> on the floor and they'll yeah, be Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So do you guys have any questions for us? Yeah, I've, I've got a question. My question is, how are you going to be celebrating World Rabies? That is a great question. The 28th of September. Yeah. So um, we actually, on the 28th, um, our team has a statewide webinar. And we reach out to all of the infection preventionists to the acute and outpatient settings in our state. And we are having kind of a, a critters themed webinar. So rabies will be included in that. And we'll be announcing this podcast. So we'll drive everybody to the podcast platform as well. Um, and then other than that, I'm just going to hang out and snuggle my vaccinated dog. <laughs> yeah, I will probably do the same. <clears throat> I may be on the podcast. We may have to mention things. Yeah, I think Rebecca said we get like, a whole slide to talk about the podcast. So I have to put something yeah. together. 
we'll we'll get your website on there share it with the whole state of nebraska and anybody else that is listening so yeah it'll be good uh, i think that is a trick question from kim and that backfired because he had a great answer <laughs> <laughs> i think she was prepared for that it seemed uh, <laughs> seemed like it <laughs> <laughs> That sounds much more exciting than addressing answering emails, which I think probably is how I'll spend most of, of my day. Well, yeah, I'll do that too. I'll, I'll still have to like work my normal stuff, but you know, it's a special day. Let's celebrate. So I was reading on your website, um, September 28th was picked for a specific reason. Absolutely, Terence. Yes, so that's that's the anniversary of the the death of Louis Pasteur, who um, I'm sure, or well, hopefully, um, everyone is aware that he created the first rabies vaccine. Um, he interestingly didn't administer it, which many people think he did. Um, it was actually a, uh, his his colleague who was a medical doctor, because Louis Pasteur wasn't a medical doctor, he couldn't actually administer the vaccine. Um, but he developed the first vaccine and it's the anniversary of his death. And that's why that day was selected and uh, yeah, why, why it's significant, uh, at least for the rabies world, because that without that vaccine, we, we wouldn't be where we are. And I think the, with the, the, the progress and the advances from that vaccine and from that first administration of the vaccine, um shows that it really can be done and i think that's very much the spirit of world rabies day uh, overall that's very cool so should i create an event on your world map then for our webinar <laughs> please that would be fantastic because we we try to highlight all the different events we want to highlights the those champions around the world so you know people laugh when when they think oh well, you know am, am i really a rabies champion but to to contribute to raise awareness to do the things that that people are doing from around the world whether it's vaccinating dogs doing a webinar posting rabies awareness messages on social media whatever it is you're making a difference and and with that you're actually saving lives so in our eyes, you're a rabies champion by doing that. So please do that. Um, we can help highlight your events, show the great work that you are doing, um, and hopefully build a, a bigger and better rabies community. I will get that done for sure. Outstanding. Thank you guys for everything that you're doing. This is, uh, and for joining us today, this is terrific. Thank you it's our for having absolute us. pleasure. We'll have to have you on next year for another episode and talk <laughs> about all the work that has been done in the last year. <laughs> that would be great. So. <laughs> you may regret saying that because then you have to deal with us again. <laughs> no, we no, can have this famous Andre Kutzer next time, or infamous, <laughs> shall we say. Well, I just want to go to Zanzibar. I mean, it, that seems like a, a pretty cool place to go. That, that is one of the, the nicer project sites, let's let's say. <laughs> there, I would there, assume. there are the benefits to, to eliminating rabies on, on a on a tropical island. <laughs> yeah, that would not be horrible, I don't imagine. <laughs> well, this is, is the there... moment where I should I should probably add that the Zanzibarians came to us 
the request for surveillance <laughs> and and not the other way around. So you guys are getting your reputations preceding you. I was going to ask you about how that went. I mean, because when you start a program and you start going into places, I think people are always like, why are you here? What's your agenda? You know, and, and I assume as you guys have gotten ongoing for the past 15 years now, uh, I wondered if people were seeking you out to help, which I think is a testament to um, how good uh, of a job you guys are doing and how hopeful you are. Well, I think that's that's a core part of our model, actually, is that we work very differently to, to many other organizations, is that in most instances, we don't approach a country and say, listen, we, we have funding, we have a project that we want to do here. Um, in most instances, we are approached by uh, one of those rabies champions that I mentioned, and with that, we then look to support them, and we then seek funding and means to support that champion. Uh, so we we generally do work in that almost reverse model where people approach us. We want that sustainability. Um, we need that that support and that drive from somebody on the ground who has that knowledge and has that impetus. And so we we rather work in that way to then seek funding and support for that particular champion than having a grant and telling a country that's, you know, listen, we, we, we're doing a project in your country, get, get on board. <laughs> <laughs> Things always work better if people think it's their idea, right? Absolutely. <laughs> that, that question of ownership is, is central to, to ensuring any sort of sustainability. Um, otherwise, as I said, as soon as you step, step out the door, it's, you know, that people have moved on to the next thing, but, but that, that ownership um, and, and also the, the drive and commitment, um, including financial commitment, often these governments are stepping up with, the, with funds to provide assistance and technical training to their own staff, which essentially we're, we're providing. When Terence is traveling around the world, he's spending most of his time providing technical training to ensure that those communities can better deliver uh, their control programs. That's awesome. You guys are doing great work. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank, thank you very, very much, much for the invitation. Thank you guys. It was great. Good to meet yeah. you both. Yes. Great and to meet you and have a uh, good rest of your day. You've got a long day ahead, unfortunately, <laughs> since we got you up so early in the morning. Luckily, we... We're starting to wrap up our days. <laughs> That's okay. So that means that you guys can go to the pub and have a pint for us, right? <laughs> uh, I must like a great idea. I must admit, I'm in central London, and as you may have heard, there was a bit of a funeral going on here. Oh yes, um, that's right. I have actually avoided because it's just a, just a reams of police and barricades and so forth. But now the pomp and ceremony is over. I might actually go and have a look at the flowers. Apparently, they put out flowers um, around all the trees. These were, and and apparently that's really quite beautiful. So um, maybe this evening I'll pop out to have a look at uh, at uh, all the flowers which are left out around various parks in London. Very nice. Sounds like a great plan. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys take care. Followed by a pint in a pub. <laughs> thank you very much thanks, thanks very much, much guys bye-bye
for all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining us on Dirty Drinks today. We will catch you for the next episode. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.